はい。All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Daniel today. Like always, Daniel chapter 3. But let me catch up on the story a little bit, which, if it wasn't clear from watching the trash thing, which was phenomenal, by the way. By the way, Mikey Portis, what a great vocal range you have in there. And that thick, is he here? Probably. He, he's probably not. He doesn't listen when I talk. Anyway, it was beautiful.、Um, Hey, it's been, it's been cool hanging out with you guys. It was cool doing a seminar today with <laughs> a packed room in Memorial Chapel. It was very hot in there. But a lot of great questions about God's existence and those things. That was really fun. And then even walking around camp、um, and just getting to hang out with you guys has been,、uh, it's been a super big honor. So,、uh, to catch you up in the story, we find out that Daniel is、um, he's one of the kings, he's been learned in the, the ways of Babylon, and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they kind of stand as like the, the last battalion of, of Yahweh followers that are now, now find themselves in Babylon. They were, they were given the food of Babylon and they rejected it. They were asked to, to learn the things of Babylon, and while they learned them, it didn't seep into their skin. They did not, like the Mad Hatters, let it enter into their system. And while they were given new names, they, they did not get new. Identities. You can change my name, but it's not going to change who I actually worship. And so they find themselves in this resolve. And, and, and the whole situation is going to get a little bit more intense here because what's going to happen is King Nebuchadnezzar, this is a historical and documented、uh, system in, in, in their culture, builds this like 90 foot high statue to himself. And They, they find themselves, Dan, Dan, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in a great spot because Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he said, If you can't interpret my dream, I'm going to murder you and burn your house to the ground. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are like, Oh no, we better figure this out. God tells them the meaning of the dream, and essentially it predicts the future of this empire. Babylon will fall, there will be people that come in and out. Here comes Rome, here comes、uh, God's chosen people, over and over again. So it's, it's, What's prophesied is what's going to happen next in, in world history. And as such, the king Nebuchadnezzar, for like four minutes, is like, yay, this, this is a great God. He revealed these things to you. Praise be the name of Yahweh. We should follow him forever. Also, let's build a fat statue to myself and everyone worship that instead. It was like at the end of a sentence, he decided to worship himself once again. And this is what Babylon does, right? You can make a nod to God every once in a while, but. We're going to worship me. We're going to worship what I think and, and what I find priority in. And the kings of our culture and the celebrities and the fame and, and me, myself, and I, I am going to dictate what we worship. So build this big statue. And then he says, Now I'm going to play a little tune for you on the, there's like 13 instruments. I always forget what they are. He says, Here's what's going to happen nations and people of every language. This is verse four of chapter three, if you want to follow along. Then the herald proclaimed loudly, Nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the hoot, the, the, hoot, <laughs> the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the procession of this taking place, and all of a sudden they start to play the sound of the flute and the horn and the lyre and the zither and the electric guitar and the triangle. And when all that happens, everyone bows down, and as Nebuchadnezzar looks out over the crowd of people, right, he's kind of feeling it, he's vibing, but then he sees these three Jews standing up in the corner, going, 
what are you doing in the corner? And they're like, yeah, about the whole bowing thing. I'm so sorry, but we only bow to Yahweh. Oh, you can change our names. You can feed us food. We're going to reject it. You can do whatever you want to do. You can play the music around us. I'm not going to have any beef with people around me worshiping. But as for me, (laughs) I'm not going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't appreciate this. He's the narcissist narcissist. He believes that he is one with God himself. He sets up a statue to himself. And here's his response, verse 13, furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true, you three, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I set up? Now, when you hear the sound of all that music again, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He thinks his question's rhetorical, but it's not. Keep going. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. It's an interesting phrase right here because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in one breath come forward with great confidence, right? Kind of childlike faith. Look, God made everything out of nothing. God spoke the universe into existence. He told light to be and without referential point, light became. He, has, he knows subatomic particles to the 13th and 14th dimension. He knows every hair on everyone's head. He invented things like the duckbill platypus and metallurgy. There's nothing my God cannot do. So I'm not confused about whether or not the sovereignty of God is on display because he brings young, small people like 15 and 17 year old me into kingdoms and empires and interprets dreams for us. He's able to make high the lowly and he's able to make low the high. And this is the way that my God works. He is sovereign in all things. Nothing that happens that doesn't cross his desk first. So with great theology, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, do you not know that the same God who interprets dreams is sovereign over all things can deliver us? And here's the faith. And he will deliver us. But there's still a caveat. There's still a big but right here, right? But, here's what it says. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the pattern of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They resolve ahead of time. I've got confidence that God's gonna save me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing to you. I'm not gonna do what you've asked me to do. I only bow to Yahweh. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious again. Uh, He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. That's a lot. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that when they opened up the furnace, the men who were tying them up were killed immediately. They threw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into that fiery furnace? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, 
I see four men walking around in the fire. They're no longer bound. They are not harmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into pile of rub- piles of rubber, rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. When you read a story like this, let me, let me explain to you the danger of reading Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Bible is written by 40 authors over the span of 3,500 years, but it covers all of human history, however long that is. That's every person who's ever lived in the pattern of this story of the meta-narrative of God redeeming everything. Page one of the Bible is God invented everything. He spoke into existence. Page two is the perfection of such things. And page three is when we royally biffed it up. We tried to do what only God can do. We thought that God was holding out on us. We thought there were better things out there than following and being communion with God. And we found out that we were sadly mistaken. And you and my great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother, we are all united and related in some long historical pattern. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, decided that they were gonna try, it's your relative, we're gonna try to do God's job better than he could. So they rebelled against him. They defied the king's command and sin entered the picture. God had perfect communion with his people. And then we said, we prefer a world where we call the shots. We prefer a world where we're in charge, where we get to do what we want, we get to say what we want, we get to go where we want, we get it. We want total autonomous freedom and we had no clue what the heck we were asking for because we got exactly that. We became the master and the master of our own domain and what we did with it is we turned it into an absolute massive dumpster fire of a planet. We brother began to kill brother. That's the very next story in the Bible is Cain kills Abel and all of humanity falls. History falls, the human genome falls, cancer enters the picture. Why? Because we got exactly what we asked for. Get rid of God. And we live in modern day Babylon, thousands and thousands of years. We reap the benefit of that mistake. But alas, God did not leave us to stew in our mistakes, but he sent Genesis chapter three, verse 15 and 16. He promises that one day he's gonna come and he is gonna pay the price of rebellion that you and I owe when he sends his own son to die on a cross to pay the price for our mutiny. And that's what happened 2,023 years ago. We now live in the year 2023. My son asked me this the other day in the car. He said, Dad, why do we call this year 2023? I said, it's because 2,023 years ago, God became flesh and we can't get his name off of our calendar when we want to. We just can't do it. 
He separated and bifurcated all of human history. He is the central point of everything that you've done. Your life, if you think about it's about something different, you're wrong. It's about Jesus. Your existence is only here for one reason. It's about Jesus. The whole world, the universe, the, the way that the, the, the earth rotates and shifts and moves and the moon and the stars, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with an accident. It all is for the glory of God. The sounds that the whale makes and the movement of the zebra, it all is all, it's all about one thing. It brings glory to the God of the universe who is infinitely creative and deeply in love with his creation. And the problem with reading Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is we forget that this is called a miracle. And we have bought hook, line, and sinker this ideology that many of you have that if you're gonna be a Christian, God's promised you something that he's never promised you. In some weird, broken gospel that doesn't actually exist in reality, we have started to read the book of first hesitations and second hesitations in these books that we've made up of ourselves. And we've thought, if I'm a Christian, God's gonna give me certain things. If I asked you, what does God promise you? If you follow God, if you follow Jesus and you do what he says and you are faithful in church and you, you read scripture and, and you're with your friends and, and, and you, you go in and your hands raised in worship and you sing out loud and you, you, know, you, you, you don't listen to rap music or whatever, I don't know, you know whatever, whatever you qualify as being a bad thing, right? Whatever in your head, you're like, man, if I avoid this, then God's really gonna be on my side. God's really gonna love me. And, and, but we have, we've bought something deeper than that. It's not just the idea that if I become a good person, God's gonna love me. There's, there's another level of promise that we've started to bargain for ourselves. And that's if I follow God, he's gonna protect me. If I follow God, the things of this world are not going to come into my life. If I follow God, my parents are not gonna end in divorce. If I follow God, the cancer's not gonna return. If I follow God, this sickness is not going to hurt. If I follow God, bullying isn't gonna be part of my story. If I follow God, my life, because he's the king, there's a promise that no one knows who made it, but that we've accepted as a culture. Because in our culture, if I'm king and if I'm God, we ask, I get asked this question all the time. Why did God make us as if we were the central figure of history? And then we ask the question, why doesn't God do what I want him to do? Because we're so egocentric, we think that God somehow revolves around us. But friend, you couldn't deal with that worship if it was given to you. You couldn't handle the focus of God for half a second. The scripture says a man named Moses asks to see the face of God and God says the closest you can get to seeing the power of my glory is if you look at the place where I used to be five minutes ago. That's as close as you can get to how powerful I am. But we don't buy it. I don't buy it. If there's a God out there, he would do something about the pain in my life. He would cease the suffering. He would prevent things from happening. He would bring me high. He would make sure that I was made much of as if that's my main goal in life is to make much of my name, but it's not. The reality of the danger of reading Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the fire is coming in your life if it hasn't already hit you, and you probably understand what I understand. The reason that this story makes scripture is because God chose in this moment to intervene, but how many hundreds of thousands, if not hundreds of millions of moments in human history has a righteous man prayed out, God, fix the situation, and the answer was no. Do you think if three dudes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are modern day, their names like Ken, Greg, and Bill, and they come into right now in Africa and all over the world, people are getting their heads lopped off for following Jesus. And guess what? 
We don't have a lot of stories of someone coming down with a knife to chop someone's head off and the knife turns to rubber and it just doesn't work. Every day, people are being persecuted and murdered because they carry Bibles in their pocket. There's a guy that just started coming to my church two weeks ago because the, his country of origin is after him to execute him and his children because he claims to follow Jesus. And I've got every confidence that if he stays where he is and presents himself to his country's government, that he's going to get his head cut off. And I have almost no confidence that when that day comes and they do a firing squad or whatever it's going to be, that everyone's gun's going to jam and they're all going to go, whoa, whoa. I guess your God is God. I suppose this is the case. You see, we regulate biblical stories as some sort of normative pattern and forget that these things are called miracles. And when we normalize the miracles of scripture, we look at our life and we go, this is kind of like me, so I know that God is gonna do this. I know that God's gonna stop this. I know that God's gonna prevent this. And I understand how difficult that is. Because if I asked you most of your stories and I said, tell me a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fiery furnace moment, you probably would be a little bit perplexed to come up with one of a moment where you were absolutely dead to rights, going to be executed or have something awful happen to you. And in the last moment, with no explicable explanation, a fourth guy in white shows up and protects you from it. And you're like, that was neat. But I bet you if I said, have you ever come under persecution or pain or threat or violence or suffering or abuse or sexual abuse or neglect from your father or anything? Do you have a situation where you felt like you were all alone and no one did crap about it? Have you ever had that? Have you ever prayed to God that he would come through and he didn't do it? How many of you in here are Christian? I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. And you have prayed a fervent prayer to God and the answer was no. The only ones without their hands up are either in immaculate denial or they're not a Christian. Hands down. You see, what happens is we normalize stories like this and then when something bad happens in our life, we go, why, why, why don't you do what you did? Why don't you come through like you came through there? And we've created a false theology in our hearts of what God's all about. And tonight we're gonna talk about what do we do with the most common question that your generation is gonna ask. The number one reason why you and why the people sitting around you at a clip of 75% of the people in this room, when they leave high school, will fall away from Jesus in this next stage of their life. You will either desire a new affection towards someone who doesn't follow Jesus and they will tear you down and you will not follow Jesus anymore. It's, I'm, I'm not guessing. <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. I've worked in youth ministry long enough. I get it. Or you'll have a fiery furnace where God doesn't come through. It's called the problem of evil. The question is simple. If God is so good, then why do bad things happen to good people? Some of you, your big beef with God is simply this. I would never follow a God who allows the things in this world to happen that happen. And if he is sovereign, he would be able to stop them. And if he was loving, he would want to stop them. And if he's omniscient, he would know that they're worth stopping. And so you tell me what I'm supposed to think when the omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God of the universe doesn't do anything and doesn't intervene. You tell me how I'm supposed to have faith in the middle of that situation. And you know what hurts us? 
what hurts us is the same thing that hurts when you go away to college and you take one philosophy class. If you go to college and you take one philosophy class or one psychology class, you will just, you'll be just dangerous enough to annoy everyone around you. You take one psychology class, you're like, narcissist, mm, multiple personalities, borderline personality disorder. That's what people do. You go to college and then someone teaches you big words and you're like, I see this everywhere. And the problem with the scriptures and the problem with theology is most of us in here only know enough about Jesus to be in really grave danger with our faith. A lot of us, we will fail in our faith and I will hear people who used to follow Jesus in my life tell me the reason why and I go, is that honestly all the explanation you would need? Are you really that ignorant of what and who God is that that was able to take you away from it? but we've become disinterested in God's true character because we've become just fine enough with going, I know enough about him to pray when I pray and to think when I think and to worship when I wanna worship. I don't need to get in to all of the details about who God actually is, but friend, inside the details of God's character lies the issue of the problem of evil that you will have to solve if your life's gonna be worth anything in following Jesus because evil's coming for you. Am I a prophet? No, this is what the text says. John chapter 14, do you not understand in this world you will have trouble? If I asked you, what does Jesus promise you? And I told you that the two main things that he promises us in scripture are pain and persecution. That doesn't tend to be what we actually apply to God promising us. We think he promises us all these good things, health, wealth, wellness, long life, all the blah, blah, blah. I can tell you it because I do funerals all the time. A month ago, I did a funeral for a one-year-old. What do you say? What do you say? God needed another angel? That's biblically horribly inaccurate. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Like, sometimes you just gotta sit in moments and go, I don't know. I don't know. But see, scripture gives us enough to actually understand what to do in moments when you are gonna have to come to a conclusion in your faith. Here's my question to you. Is this whole Christian thing just a really convenient season of your life where the people you want to hang out with might be semi-churchy anyway, and Hume Lake's a really awesome place to go, and you got to put some religion in your Instagram bio because you want to be enlightened and stuff. So let's do the little cross thing, but that's really all it's going to mean. And I'm going to tell you what, any idea of a cross that only shows up in your bio and not in your heart will make no difference to you or to him on that last day. It's just an inefficient way of living your life if you're going to actually follow Jesus. And the reason I know that is because that little tiny cross theme inside of your bio will get wiped away as soon as pain hits because you don't know what to do if the fire comes for you. you don't, you're just not going to know. And just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have to resolve ahead of time because if you wait for pain to hit to, to make sense of God, you will lower your theology to match your pain every time. You will either dive into deconstructionism and progressive theology to try to make sense of why your heart feels a certain way, or you will know enough about God to surrender your heart and say, your ways are not my ways, nor are your thoughts my thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so your ways are higher than mine, declares the Lord, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That is the bifurcation of every student in here. The separation is not, some of you will experience pain and some of you will have just the roses life. Everything's gonna be so good. It's not the case. 
Some of you will struggle with infertility your whole married life. Some of you will go and, and, and apply for job offers. Some of you are gonna have a horrible accident and it's gonna leave, and this, a room this size, I can almost say anything that I want to and it's gonna hit one of you. What are you gonna do when that happens? I guess this is my question. What are you gonna do on the day where you have to decide? Is Jesus this, is he the centerpiece of my life that I revolve everything around? Do I see everything through the lens of the kingdom of God? Or is he just this side idea of my life, the little pixie fairy dust on my otherwise all about me life, but I've gotta have something that I believe in, right? I can't just, I, atheism's too complicated for me. I'm not quite sure how that all works out. So I gotta, I don't know. I mean, Mormonism, I'm not sure. Like it is, I do, I'm American, so maybe I'll just be a Christian. And then that's like the religious belief system of your life. It's ineffective. It's ineffectual. It won't last. The Bible says if you do that, you're like a guy who builds his house on sand, right? It looks great until the wind blows and the tide comes in. And then it's like, bye house. That was fantastic. Jesus promises us really unique things. Persecution and pain. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I've overcome the world. I'm gonna send you out like a sheep among wolves. The world hates me. It's gonna hate you even more. This is the promise. These are the promises of Jesus. And I watch people all the time come up to me and go, I don't believe in God because there's pain in my life. And I said, friend, did you hear what he promised? I'm not gonna follow Jesus because there's persecution in my life. I would totally accept what you're saying if the Bible ever said, don't worry, if you follow God, there will be no pain. Then you should walk away from God because pain entered when he said it wouldn't. He is then a fallible God who speaks lies. But it's so interesting to me that we put God on trial for doing exactly what the scriptures said was going to happen. <laughs> you're gonna have pain, but I've got pain. He must not be real. What? He, that's, a, <laughs> that's what he said was gonna happen. But I can tell you from personal experience, you can think as much theology as you want and on the day where suffering and pain hits your life, that is gonna be the moment that makes all the difference. That moment will separate whether Hume Lake 2023 was just another flash in the pan belief system that you had for a few years and then it was done with until college hit or if it's gonna be on your last day where you close your eyes in death that you're gonna see the king face to face and he's gonna call you son or daughter. It's going to be fought in the problem of evil in your life and whether or not you can make sense of it. On March 24th of 2021, my fifth child was born and her name's Finley. And after that, my wife started having these like weird back pains and we weren't quite sure what they were. And um, she was not able to sleep. So we went to the doctor's office. They diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism. A pulmonary embolism is a blood clot on the lungs. It's especially dangerous because if the blood clot slips, it goes into your heart and it can kill you instantly. 25% of everyone who has a pulmonary embolism doesn't realize they have it until they're dead. My wife, um, like summa cum laude of the whole university, national championship softball player, um, graduated college at the age of 19 at the top of the university. Just one of those like strangely brilliant people. And... So when they said pulmonary embolism, Paige knew immediately what that meant and what it could mean. We went to the hospital, they diagnosed her, they showed her everything, and the doctor just kind of haphazardly said, I'm so glad you guys came in today. If you would have waited a week, you might not be here anymore. But this is after we had our fifth kid and everything in our life was absolutely perfect. We loved where we were, we loved where we worked, we loved everything about our lives. And then in a moment, 
Paige watched everything start to crumble or potentially crumble. So we were going to bed that night. We felt like we had repose, right? She started on blood thinners. Everything was gonna be okay. And she wakes me up at 12.30 in the morning and she feels her heart palpitating in a weird way and she thinks that the blood clot has passed to her heart. And so she wakes me up and she says, Christopher, I'm dying. I, I, we need to wake up the kids and we need to, to say goodbye to them before I pass on. And I'm like, right, I, what is going, and I'm like getting out of like a stupor of sleep and I'm like, what, what do you want? Like, what, you wanna do what? And so I'm calling an ambulance. I'm trying to calm her down. It basically, it's, it's called a cardiac infarcture, which means that there's like a little, a, a strange pitter-patter in her heart that takes place because of a, resu- a result of a loss of oxygenated blood to one side of her heart during the time she had the blood clot. Nothing to be worried about or anything else like that. The next night we get in bed and she's, she has now combined the idea that if I fall asleep, I'm gonna die. Her brain has just bought this idea. If I fall asleep, I'm gonna die. If I fall asleep, I'm gonna die. If I fall asleep, I'm gonna die. So she just stopped sleeping. She didn't sleep for 10 days straight. Now, I didn't say she slept a little bit for 10 days. She didn't sleep at all for 10 days straight. Starting on day five, we started going to the emergency room because she started seeing weird things and hallucinating. And we said, I was like, doc, just give like whatever you need to do. Like, I, I literally was like, can we just put her in under an- anesthesia? Like, I don't even know what, I don't, is, that, is that ethical? Is that legal? I don't know what it is. All I know is I've got a newborn baby and four other kids and none of us have slept in a while. And I get to nap during the day when my family comes over, but she hasn't slept at all. And she's starting to say some pretty interesting things. And so they keep giving her bigger and bigger and bigger pills and medicines and combinations of things. And she's still, her brain is just too strong. That same brain that is able to get her a four point, whatever it was at a university at the age of 19, also was strong enough to keep her encapsulated in this moment. By day seven, she started talking about having suicidal ideation. She would walk around our house and start to dictate to me how she was going to kill herself with random objects that we saw. And it was, I'm talking about someone who has never struggled with anxiety, never struggled with depression, never struggled. She even led a small group for girls and she was confused by the idea that someone would want to end their own life. And so it it was a really difficult thing to navigate with her. And even as a pastor, there's a, there's a taboo there to go, my wife's having a mental health crisis, like who never had anything go wrong. She's like the picture of health, right? She's, I mean, yeah, softball player. She's a holistic health coach. She was pre-med, like brilliant. What is going on in this moment? So I ended up talking one night and, and I bring her to church with me because I was teaching at the Jordan, this young adult ministry in North County. And um, she said, you can't go teach tonight because I don't trust what's going to happen if you leave me. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I, I, I like summon the troops. I'm like, everyone come here. I need help. I'd like someone come and do something. Like I feel like I'm outside of my pay grade now. And I'm not quite sure what to do. And so our whole I fortunately went to a, a massive church. I was, a, I was a teaching pastor at a massive church. So we had lots of resources. We had a whole counseling team that worked with me. And they came and they sat with her and I went and I taught a message on stage and I just said, guys, my wife is having a mental health crisis. Like, I just don't want to BS you. Like, I just hate that. So I'm scared. I'm not quite sure what to do. And the whole Jordan prayed. We're talking 600, 800 students sat there and just prayed for my wife. And then I took her down to behavioral health unit in San Diego and the whole time just thinking, what? What? What am I doing? Where, are we actually going to a behavioral health unit? So we drop her off. I go down every day and bring her lunch and we eat together and she's just this like glazed over version of herself. They finally give her some medicine. It's a, essentially a tranquilizer, puts her to sleep. She comes back out of the behavioral health unit and... 
Um, the doctor says, um, maybe try brainwave optimization. So we go and they measure the trauma line in her brain. And the trauma line of a normal person is about a two. Someone who comes home from Iraq is about a 31 and she was registering a 64, which meant that her brain lived in fight or flight. Her, she thought she was constantly at war and she had to keep herself alive at all times, which obviously messes with every part of your brain chemistry. When you don't sleep for that long, it can recircuit and rewire your brain at a fundamental level. So the doctor says, I think what you need to do is just go do something that you would normally do. And this is great because the next week, which started on July 18th of 2021, I was gonna come and teach at Hume. So on this day, two years ago, it was time to go up to Hume Lake. And it was just, we're gonna make things normal. And the doctor said, what you need to do is she's having a trauma response. You need to keep her away from trauma. There's a lot of work we need to do for her brain chemistry and neuroscience, but right now you just gotta get her away from trauma. And so as a part of that, I took her here, this is our home away from home. I've been teaching here for 10 years. This is my, this is, I sat right here when I was 12 years old and gave my life to Jesus. And I've been coming every year since until they asked me to teach on a whim. And I've been so grateful to have this as my second home. And so I was like, Paige, we're gonna go to Hume. And, and I'm teaching the second night of Hume. And I get pulled off stage because my son is unconscious. And I'm running around camp going, what are you talking about? I get to the infirmary and my son, Leo, is sitting there and he's just lifeless. He's not moving, he's not talking, he's not doing anything. My wife is holding him and the, my wife's pill bottle of her intense medication is empty. And so the firefighter came up to me, the EMT that was working on and said, Chris, if your son took these pills, there's nothing we can do. We'll try to get him down the mountain as quickly as we can, but there's no promises. If his vitals are gonna to start to collapse, we're gonna to need to pull over, follow us in your van. If you see our brake lights, you need to stop because we're gonna to need to resuscitate him. But if this is what happened, it's just, let's just hurry and, and let's just pray and let's just hurry. So I'm like in the van going down the mountain and I'm just like screaming, right? I'm the only one in the van, but it's just, it's like this, um, it's like guttural, you know? It's like primal, it's like, um, it's like being deeply let down by someone. And it's a, it's, the, the someone is a sovereign someone. That's the confusing part about it. Confusing part about following Jesus as your Lord and Savior, friend, confidant, and comforter is he knows and he can do something and he's not intervening. We get down into, to Reedley to the nearest hospital and I get into the emergency room with my uh, with my wife Paige and she's holding Leo and I look at her and she's just glazed over and I just remember thinking the one command the doctor said keep her away from trauma imagine a more traumatic experience and the timing of it all to think that your son is dead and if he's gonna make it he's gonna be paralyzed or in a wheelchair or, or some disability and we're still gonna love the heck out of him and I think God's still gonna have great stuff with his life but we just it's just terrifying to see that it turns out that my son Brady had dumped all her pills down the toilet in the exact same moment that a really rare neurological disorder called acute onset cerebralitis hit my son. And there was absolutely no reason why those two things would happen in the same year, let alone in the same five minutes. And that's what happened in order to send Paige into a deeper, deeper mental sickness. We got done with Hume, it was her birthday. I threw her a surprise party at the beach. And the next day we were, I was sitting next to her in our house talking and then she, from the second story to the first story, just jumped off the balcony below 
And I was looking at her, and she's looking back up at me, and she says, I need help. And I was like, I, I don't know what to do. So I start, I, I we start traveling to Bakersfield, because that's where my parents are. I'm going to need help with the kids, because I've been watching the kids every single night. I've been sleeping in the room with all five kids, guarding the door, because I don't know what she might do in a moment, a moment of insanity. So I'm protecting my newborn, who I'm feeding throughout the whole night, and my other four kids, from their mom. So... We find this place in Tucson that's supposed to be the best treatment center in America for treating PTSD, which is what she needs to do in order to start her treatment for her psychosis and her multiple personalities. And so she checks into there, and, and as she's checking in, I remember thinking, this is what God must be doing. He brought me through all this crap so that maybe in the future, Paige and I can be this beacon of hope for people who struggle with mental illness in the church. Maybe I'm supposed to be here to remove the stigma of what's going to happen and permeate throughout this next generation because you struggle with this too. Maybe that's, like the, maybe that's the plan. Maybe it's the big ordinate, like, sovereignty plan that I didn't see coming, but I, I, I sense God's goodness in the middle of all of this stuff. And on the eighth day of her treatment, I get a call that she's killed herself. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stories seem a lot of times to end more like that, you know? To like sit in that moment and like reiterate to the person who told you that, did you just say that my wife's dead? And then just process, right? I want, I want, you, I want to bring you into my world for a second. What, what's your next step? What do you do next? Like what, you hang up the phone and then what do you do? Do you start with the kids? Do you explain to them why? I don't know. Mom loves them, but she took her own life and she's never coming home. You call her dad and explain why when he passed you off to her at the, on the aisle that you failed in your responsibility to keep her safe. Like what's, you got a list and you got to complete it. And I remember just like crumbling in the weight of myself and thinking, if there, is a, if there is a God, and I'm not quite sure, because what kind of God does this? I'm not like, I'm, I'm, I'm not like, a, I don't like own some provocative casino. I don't, I'm not asking for big grandiose things. I don't want to be like a Lamborghini owner. I just want my wife to be okay. And you just said no over and over again. And now she's dead. And now I'm a single widowed father of five pastors. Is this your big plan? Now he's going to have this great testimony because he lost his wife to suicide. And, this, and then I just told him, I don't want anything to do with you. So if that was your plan, was for me to be some kind of itinerant preacher for this message of how you're still good in the midst of my suffering, like, just forget it. I just don't. I hate you. I just... And I don't care what it costs me. I knew enough. I was an apologist. I knew enough about God's existence that I knew he was there. I knew I wasn't speaking to some hole in the wall, but I just wanted to break his heart and say, I don't care if you'd send me to hell. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to sing another song. I'm not going to worship at all. I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to open that scripture. And it's like moments like that where you got to understand, is this just something that I say that I think or what do I do when that happens? What do you, like, what do you do? 
What do you do when the great promise of protection breaks down completely? What do you do when the God that you thought was there is not the actual character of the God that's there? What do you do? You have two options. You either say, that's it. You don't match up to who I thought you were gonna be. I'm ripping up religion and I'm going my own way. Or you say, maybe I've missed something this whole time. And maybe I need to rip up my preconceived notions about who you're not and allow you in your beauty to replace what I thought you were. And I just remember praying so deeply, if you're the, reveal to me who you actually are because the you that I thought you were five minutes ago before I got this freaking phone call is dead. So you're gonna have to teach me something new about you. And I remember I, I turned on some Alexa device, right? And I just said, play worship music. And the first song that comes on is a song by Sean Curran, and the, the chorus goes like this. I didn't even heard this song before. The chorus says, um, I throw all my cares before you because my doubts and fears don't scare you. You're bigger than I thought you were. I stop all negotiations with the God of all creation because you're bigger than I thought you were. And this is, you're talking to a guy, I can read and write in the original languages. I know the Bible forward and backward. And you know how ridiculous I felt saying, teach me something new about you. But he did. I have found God more beautiful than I ever have before. In the ashes of the life that I thought I was gonna live, I have found God more beautiful and more sovereign, more powerful, more grace-filled, more loving. I never knew this Holy Spirit as a comforter until this happened, and now I don't know it any other way. I've never needed that. I've never relied on that. I've never, and what God replaced in his grace with the old version of him, the old one that was supposed to serve me and do what I, did, what I told him to do was his new version of God that I can't even explain to you how much better it is than the old one that I had. And I don't understand what business the suicide of your wife has with finding God more beautiful than ever before because it's been the worst freaking season I could possibly apprehend. I couldn't even consciously think up something worse happening. But what I do know is the God that I found is a God that I really want you guys to know. but I don't want, I want you to pay my dumb tax and not walk around in your life thinking that God has made these promises that he hasn't made to you. Because just like the three in the fire, he makes two promises of pain and persecution, but he also makes two promises of presence and paradise. And sometimes that's the only crap that gets me through the day. As I know you're still with me, and I know in my 350 trillionth year of eternity in perfection with you in heaven, I'm gonna look back on this minuscule 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year life and what conscious, sane thinker would ever say, because this 80 years was full of trouble, I will sacrifice all of the 3,500 trillion years I have because this was just not what I thought it was going to be. It's just not a trade worth making. And in the middle of this 
understanding, there's this verse in scripture that I think kills us as Americans. It's Romans 8, 28. It's the, it, 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 we put it on coffee mugs, we put it on t-shirts. It doesn't belong there. Romans 8, 28 says this, for I know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. If you just walked into the, into the chapel right now and you heard me say that without context, and I said, do you know that God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose? You would go, I love him. I've been called according to his purpose, so God's gonna work for my good. But then if I asked you what is good, you would say health, money, promotion, fame, celebrity, help, good grades, success, that college, that thing, that, that next, that relationship, that girl, that guy, that, that. But the coffee mug might be too small to put the next verse on it, but it completely defines what we mean when we say that God is a good God and that he gives his kids good gifts and that God's gonna make a good thing out of your life. I promise you, God is not telling you that your life is going to be American-wise good. It's just not the case. How do I know that? You might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm a pretty good person. I think he would. Do you wanna know who the best person ever is? His name's Jesus. He was humiliated, spit on, stripped naked, crucified in front of all of his friends who then hid and did not even approach him when he came back from the dead. This is the idea of karma that dies in thinking that don't worry what goes around comes around except for the time when the only perfect being ever was crucified in a traitor's death in my stead. The very next verse, Romans 8, 29 says this, for those God has called he is foreknew, he is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the promise of God. Did you know that we have a good God? Did you know that he's gonna give you good things? But you can't use American dictionaries to define what good things are. But we do it all the time, don't we? You might have a family where you pray at the dinner table, tell me something good that happened to you this week. And you go, I got good grades. That girl likes me finally. I didn't, I, I remembered all my lines for the big school play. And we go, mm, let's pray about how good of a God we, we serve. But you know what's funny? When everything goes wrong and things don't go right and all the pain does hit, we rarely end the prayer with, God, thank you for your goodness. We have tied God's goodness to our present circumstances as if it's not his character trait, but it's his circumstantial common language when I'm feeling good about him. And that's not the case of God's goodness. So how can God be good when people kill themselves? How can God be good when cancer does return? How can God be good when one-year-olds have funerals? How can God be good when fathers bury sons? How can God be good when mothers bury daughters? How? Because the goodness of God is predicated on this idea, which says the goodness of God is not that he's gonna give you money or give you these material possessions. That's not good. What is good is being conformed to the image of Jesus. This is the promise that God makes to you. He does promise you good. If you're willing to define good as whatever it is, God will continue to morph and form and mold you into the image of Jesus. And you might think, be thinking to yourself, why is that important? Because on the day when you meet God face to face, there's only one thing that matters. Are you the picture of his son? Are you conformed to the image of his son or not? So you better believe that in this life, you will have a lot of circumstances, all of which, even in God's sovereignty, are brought to your doorstep. But you need to understand one thing. God has one and only one preoccupation with your life, that you will finish this race in him, conformed to his image. 
That's the only way you can define good and make sense of two people's lives that both follow God, one in Haiti who's poor with nothing and is constantly under the threat of some kind of persecution and terror, and someone else who follows God who's living in a penthouse in downtown LA who gets whatever they want all the time. How can God be both of their gods and he consider both of them good? Because you better believe that if someone gets a job promotion, it can conform them to the image of his son. They can be more generous. They can be more giving. They can be more loving. They can help people who have less than them. But you also better believe that God can be good in the midst of the persecution and the terror in Haiti because that person will begin to hate Babylon and yearn for the kingdom of God. Do you want to know what I think about the world? I hate it. I hate Babylon. I can't wait for him to come back. But in the meantime, we've got a mission and we've got a job to do. Jesus warns us, do not love this world or anything in it or it will consume you and you will care much more about what it thinks about you than what God thinks about you and what he's doing in you. I want to tell you something, friends. God is a good God. And he's doing a good work in each one of your lives. But do not think that that means you're not going to come into persecution or come into pain. Those are two things God promised. But he also promised that he's going to be present with us. And that this life is a vapor in the wind, here today and gone tomorrow, and we will spend forever, those who surrender our life to Jesus will spend forever and eternity with him in paradise. And sometimes for the Christian... I don't get out of bed because I'm super stoked about what cool things I get to do today. Sometimes what gets me out of bed is that hell is hot, eternity is long, and there are people sitting in this room right now who will meet God face to face and get rejected. And I'll tell you what, over my dead body, I just want as many of you to know the Christ that I know as possible. And I hope you feel that same level of conviction if you're a follower of Jesus. But if you have this old, outdated version of Jesus that just keeps you protected and gives you really nice earthly things, just get rid of it. Don't wait until the suffering hits. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can become dangerous if you think this is somehow normative. The truth is that God doesn't promise moments like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a description of one event. It's not a prescription of what he's going to do. But if you don't allow that truth to make that journey from your head to the conviction of your heart, the day that suffering hits, you're done. And if there's one thing I want for you, I want you to know Jesus, the real one. Not the fake, psychophantic, worldly version, cultural, spit-out accusation one. I want you to know the real one who's more beautiful than the fake one who just keeps you safe. Would you pray with me? Jesus, the only reason that this sermon is able to be taught is because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt with the deep conviction that Paige had that she is with you right now, that she does not experience mental illness anymore. She doesn't experience pain and she wouldn't come back to this earth if she was invited to because she is free and she is in her glory and she is in your presence and that is what we all have to look forward to. It is us who we should mourn and grieve over who are waiting for the day where we will see you face to face. And in the meantime, inside of Babylon, when all of the things of the thorns and thistles of this life and the hurt and the pain and the brokenness and 
and the neglect and the abuse and the divorce and the cancer and everything just ruminates throughout our culture, would we not get lost in the bad theology of thinking that if we follow you, somehow you've promised us that all that's gonna go away, but instead you promise something better. You promise your presence, which is better than gold, and you promise paradise, which is ours forever. As soon as this vapor of a wind of a life is done, would we cling to that in those moments where we don't know anything except for the deep pain of the gratuitous suffering of the human experience? Would we resolve like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did ahead of time to recognize the real you and not the fake cultural version of the God who has somehow promised to protect us, which is nowhere in scripture, deepen our faith, bring us to conviction, let us follow the real you. So let me pray, amen.